And in boxing, you got the same thing. You have boxers, and then you have punchers, and then you have guys like Ezra Charles, who was a boxer and a puncher. And then you have guys like uh, Joe Lewis, a boxer and a puncher. Uh, and then if the guy can take a punch, if you got a good jaw structure, you know, you got a jaw like a Mack truck, where you not only can box when you have to, and then when the guy's in trouble, or you can really punch and, and get him out of there, and you're going to get hit once in a while. Now, if you can take a punch, then you got something. Then you got a complete fighter. If you live in Cincinnati, you may know the name Ezra Charles. You may know that he was a boxer, and you probably know him as the namesake for the road that connects I-75 to Music Hall. You may know that his nickname was the Cincinnati Cobra from his mural in Over the Rhine, but you may not know that he was the greatest light heavyweight boxer of all time, and you probably don't know that Ezra Charles was hated when he was the undisputed heavyweight champion in 1950. We don't really talk about the reasons why he was so great, or even his story. Ezra read minds in the boxing ring. At his best, he was unpunchable, and at his worst, he was one of your toughest opponents. He was a middleweight who fought heavyweights. He was just too fast for those guys at heavyweight, which is the advantage that most smaller guys have when they move up against uh, bigger guys, which is kind of counter counterintuitive, right? So many boxing fans today just think, well, he's a smaller guy, so he's going to get beat up by the bigger, stronger guy. When in many cases, if the skill is there, the smaller guy uses his skill and his speed to his advantage. That was William Detloff, author of Ezra Charles, A Boxing Life. Uh, this guy is the first person to really do an in-depth biography about Ezra Charles. He's the only person to ever do it, which I, which I found impressive. It'd be a lot easier to do another book about Rocky Marciano or Joe Lewis, but his biography, precisely because it was difficult to make, precisely because he was the first person to do that biography, it, it offers a significant uh, historical value. What I knew about Ez is he was really a clean-cut guy. He, had, he lived with his grandma. And uh, most of the people that met him really liked him. Um, he, uh, he wasn't a show-off, yet he was, he was good, you know. That's Frank Wentenkamp. He is one of the people you're going to meet who actually knew Ezra Charles. Ezra was a gentleman. He defied expectations. Cincinnati fans even booed him when he won a unanimous decision over Teddy Yarose in Music Hall Arena, when he was just showing mercy to the washed-up middleweight in later rounds. He knew he'd already won, because Ezard wasn't trying to look pretty or put his all in one punch, he just wanted to win. There was a time in America when boxing was more important than football is today. When Joe Lewis knocked out Max Schmeling for the title in 1938, 70 million people listened to that broadcast on radio. It was like the Super Bowl multiplied by two. And yeah, today a big heavyweight fight, Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury, that gets some attention, but even those kind of feel like a blip on the cultural radar. Didn't have TV back in those days. So it was all radio. If you listen to the, any of the heavyweight fights, I'd listen to all the Joe Lewis's fights, you know, uh, they always were on the radio. Uh, boxing was big. They had a they had an arena. Well, my dad thought they had an arena on Central Parkway. It was called the Parkway Arena. And every Wednesday they had wrestling, and then every Friday night they had fights once a week. In fact, a lot of the guys that uh, Georgie Smith gave me, they used to fight every week, and, and they would change their name so that people wouldn't get tired of 
seeing the same fighter. <laughs> the reasons Ezard's story was swept aside is complex. It's a mixture of timing, race, style, and personality. He belongs to the club of boxers who were almost cultural forces, but in this podcast, we're going to look at why Ezard Charles is worth paying attention to, why he is the peak of masculinity, why his story deserves to be monitored a little bit more closely, and why you should pay attention to him. This episode is part one of a five-part series. My name is Ricky Mulvey. In this show, we're going to go over Charles's early career when he went from the son of a sharecropper to a top contender. Lawrenceville, Georgia had one doctor who cared for black people in 1920. Webster Pierce Ezard, Dr. Ezard. And Ezard's parents didn't have any money to pay the good doc to birth him, so they made the doctor's last name their son's first name. Ezard wasn't the only Ezard running around Lawrenceville, Georgia in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. He didn't learn to read until he was 10 years old, and it's only because he was sent up here to live with his grandmother and great-grandmother. Uh, his mother tried the best she could. Um, his father was largely absent, but... Um, he didn't, he didn't start going to school until he was 10. So uh, he had no education in, in the South. So that didn't really figure into, um, into any aspect of um, uh, his life as a student. That's Kevin Grace, the author of Cincinnati Boxing and an archivist at the University of Cincinnati. Ezra did not have an easy childhood in Georgia. Dad was in and out of the house and his mom was trying to make ends meet. The California author and playwright Bud Bugzowski was kind enough to share a letter with me that Ezard's paternal aunt, Miss Bonnie Kate Reese, wrote to him in 1975. The following has been edited for length and clarity. Lawrenceville, Georgia, 167 Branson Street, July 17, 1975. As Ezard grew older, his mother would leave him with her mother because she worked every day. Sometime later, he began living with his grandmother because she had children to play with. I could not think of all the kids he played with at the time. His best pal, name was Leroy Witherspoon. All the children Charles played with died out and others left home at an early age. By the time he was six years old, his great-grandmother was keeping him. She would take him to work with her every day and his play pal was white. Those kids ran all over town. They are all dead now. Ezard's mother had a baby girl and she lived about three months. My brother lived with Charles' mother about a year and a half. My brother's name is Willie Charles. I'm going to tell you a truth about this small town. That was a made marriage. Things didn't work out too well, so my brother left Georgia to move to Pennsylvania rather than have trouble. He didn't know any of Ezard's boyhood days, and his mother left him here when he was very small and left him with his grandmother and a great-grandmother. I'm a poor writer, and I wish I could give you more on Charles. All the people that could tell me anything has died out. Miss Bonnie Kate Reese, the aunt of Ezard Charles. Did Ezard ever talk to you about his childhood? Uh, no, but I read him the letters. Didn't know. I read him the letters, and he was kind of, you know, shook up a little bit. But, uh, you know, we, we didn't dwell on it. No, we didn't dwell on it at all. That's Bud Buksowski, the California author and playwright. We're going to hear from him a little later on, as he knew Charles primarily when he lived in Chicago in the 1960s.
Ezard spent his summer days fighting. No TVs, not too many radios. What else are you going to do in the Georgia heat? And every summer in Lawrenceville, the old guys in town would rope off a section of dirt as a makeshift boxing ring in the downtown area for the kids to fight in this bizarre game called a battle royale. Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, fought in these battle royales as a kid, and Ezra did later in the 20th century. Yeah, there's a long history of battle royales. It's, it's not like uh, it happened only occasionally or during a uh, short period. Uh, all fighters, all especially black fighters from the South during that era, and not even from just the South, uh, by the way, also the North. It was battle royales were fairly popular as a uh, as a kind of a, a sideshow to a regular. Uh, uh, boxing match and included on the card would be a bunch of guys who were just blindfolded and swinging at each other in many cases um it was fairly common and it would they were put together by you know regular boxing promoters now I, i'm sure there wasn't a boxing promoter per se putting them together in in gainesville uh when uh when after it was 10 or 11 years old but that would be just somebody in the neighborhood uh, just for entertainment yeah. a bunch of kids would get together and just uh pummel each other in a ring blindfold in some cases and that's just that was uh Ezard's first exposure uh to you know having gloves on and fighting guys it was a very common practice uh especially in the south but also in other parts of the country Ezard quickly understood that knocking around kids his own age was the first step to really being rich and famous because if you were a black kid in georgia or anywhere in the united states boxing was the only sport where black people competed against white people on a somewhat regular basis yeah, like I say, boxing was another family to everybody that boxed. You had your biological family, and then you had your boxing family. And race wasn't uh, uh, a factor. I mean, blacks always were in, in, in boxing uh, right from the get-go. That wasn't uh, biased. Uh, and the Irish, they were kind of uh, ostracized by society. When they came over here, they were the low class. They were active in boxing. Italians, the same thing. We were low class coming here from third world and taking them jobs that nobody else wanted. And uh, so actually back in the day, the Jews, the same way. The Jews, the Irish, the Italian, and the blacks. That's what made up boxing. That's Buddy LaRosa. Uh, he is one of the most colorful guests that you're going to hear in this series. You also heard him uh, to start off the episode. This man is the American dream. He went from being uh, the son of an immigrant uh, to going to World War II and fighting for the United States, coming back, and then starting a restaurant that became more than 60 locations today. Um, he also, as a side note, uh, as if that wasn't enough, had a hand in training, managing, or being a part of uh, every boxer, every champion boxer from Cincinnati for the past uh, five decades. Boxing was very racist then, okay? Uh, there's no question about that. But of all the major sports, it's clear, it was clearly the least racist. There were uh, guys, uh, professional black boxers, uh, fighting the professional white guys uh, way before uh, basketball, for example, uh, uh, was integrated, or baseball, or football. Boxing was always a popular sport for those who had to adapt to live. Again, here's Buddy LaRosa. And then uh, if you were Irish and if you were um, Jewish or Italian and you went into the pros, many of them changed their name. Like some people, when they go into show business, they have a stage name. Well, some of them fought under 
different names because promoters were might have been a little prejudiced. They didn't particularly like Jews or didn't like Irish or Italian. So if they were booking fighters out of town, they necessarily didn't say what's his ethnic background. They'd see the name. Well, when my dad fought, he fought under Tony Rose, R-O-S-E. Prohibition also reigned during Ezard's childhood. The constitutional ban on the production and sale of alcohol helped give rise to the mob in the United States, and therefore the mob's involvement in boxing. The drinking, the gambling, and the general debauchery proved to be a magnet for gangsters. And when Ez was a preteen, the age he first entered a boxing gym, the Mafia literally bought off the heavyweight championship and gave it to an Italian strongman named Primo Carnera. But that's a story for another time. Uh, when people uh, ask me, how can, how can you tell if uh, somebody was connected to the mob at all during that era? I say, did they have any big fights? And if the answer is yes, they were connected to the mob. As simple as that. You didn't get big fights uh, unless you were owned by, in, to some degree, or had some involvement or were paying some money to the mob. And that includes Ezard. Jake LaMotta, the raging bull, the Martin Scorsese movie, said in his autobiography, quote, I also noticed that around the gym, all the time, there were the mob guys, for the very simple reason that there's always betting on fights, and betting means money, and wherever there's money, there's the mob. If you paste that inside your hat, it will maybe explain a lot of things to you, and maybe even save you some trouble. After Ezard's dad left, his mom joined the Great Migration up north. She went to New York City and dropped Ezard off with his grandmother, Maude Foster, in Cincinnati's West End. She decided that New York City was no place to raise a child right. Many black people in unstable sharecropping jobs came to the West End to find work in Cincinnati's slaughterhouses, breweries, and the railroad station at Union Terminal. So it was um, everything from poor to working class uh, to middle class uh, African Americans living in the West End. And it was almost a community in and of itself. You know, the stores there that, that were frequented, the shops, the uh, local businesses, the funeral parlors, the nightclubs, uh, everything like that. It, it was almost a self-contained community. That's Kevin Grace. The smell of pork fat and open sewers reeked. When Ezard was a teenager, the Ohio River's great flood submerged his neighborhood. Cincinnati's attitudes were very different in the early 20th century. Buddy LaRosa remembers selling produce at Finley Market, which is still a bustling gathering place where you can find vendors selling meat, dairy products, and vegetables. My dad, he had a couple of stands in Finley Market, and I worked there. Uh, I joined the Navy to get away from him in that business, because uh, after a while, you, hey, there's more to selling bananas, and <clears throat> somebody stole the hand of bananas, then I'd have to run after him and take the bananas away from them, and if they try to, uh, you know, wouldn't give them to me, and then maybe they were bigger than me, then I used my boxing skill, and I hit them two or three times. Then they wouldn't mess with you. Then they got a little respect. But once you, you're you fighting with somebody that is, is trained, they can throw five, six punches, and you don't know where they came from, and you always finish with one to the head, or to the nose, you try to hit the nose, because that usually takes their spirit away. Then they run, and you bring the bananas back. And one day I did that, and the guy's father came back, and he said to my dad, he said, my son said that 
you did this to him. He says, no, my son did. But if you don't get away from here, I'll do it to you. And then he turned around and got down. In Finley Market, they're not too uh, uh, proper, you know. What do you want? What do you want, lady? <laughs> Out in the suburbs, it's, can I help you, please? <laughs> uh, you know, what would you like today, ma'am, down in Finley Market? Well, I don't know how it is now. What do you want, lady? Uh, don't touch them tomatoes, lady. I'll, I'll get them for you. Finley Market is Cincinnati's ethnic and economic mixing pot still. But you may find kinder service today if you go to buy a $10 chocolate bar, sushi-grade tuna, or aged balsamic vinegar. A childhood highlight came when the great Cuban featherweight Kid Chocolate came to Cincinnati. The promoter drove chocolate around in the West End in an open convertible, hoping that would build excitement for the fight at Music Hall Sports Arena. Charles followed, playing close attention to Kid Chocolate's beautifully tailored suit. Pictures of Jack Johnson, a rising boxing prospect named Joe Lewis and Kid Chocolate were the rare instances where Ezard would see a person of color dressed in beautifully tailored clothes. One kid ran up to Kid Chocolate's car and asked, Chocolate, how many suits you got? Man, Kid Chocolate said, I got suits for every day of the year. I got 365. The fight's promoter found Ezard in the crowd. He asked him and some of Ezard's friends if they'd set up chairs for the event. They'd get free tickets if they did. Charles jumped at the chance, and he spent hours walking the floor of Music Hall Arena to make sure that every chair was in place on the floor and the balcony. Now when I say Cincinnati Music Hall, you may be imagining the Springer Auditorium. Music Hall Sports Arena was a very different place. Well, Music Hall was a major boxing venue. Mm -hmm. uh, it, uh, this was before um, Cincinnati Gardens was built. Uh, but even afterwards, uh, it attracted a lot of the top fights. So, you know, it was it was a smaller arena when you compare it to something like the Gardens, but it was uh, smoke-filled, uh, a lot of cigars. The people who attended were, were generally a mix of, um, you know, probably 90% men um, who were wearing their fedoras and their suits and, and everything else, uh, but it was a mixture of social class and economic class because boxing was so incredibly popular here in, in the 1940s and 1950s. So when you had an arena like um, Music Hall, and, you know, we call it Music Hall, but at that time it was more or less a multi-purpose facility. They had track meets there. They had roller skating. They had dances. Uh, it wasn't just for um, uh, ballet and, and opera and uh, you know, symphony concerts. Uh, it was a little bit of everything. They had trade shows in music hall. So the fact that um, that uh, there was a boxing arena there was only natural. Again, that's Kevin Grace. He is an archivist at the University of Cincinnati, also wrote. On fight night, the tickets and the promoter, though, were nowhere to be seen. And Charles went home and listened to Kid Chocolate's mismatched victory on the radio. But that experience only grew Charles's desire to be a famous boxer. He wanted to wear those slick suits and give money to his family. Ezard at the time did not look like a heavyweight. He didn't look like the photos you've seen of him. He was a stringy, mild-mannered kid, and he wanted to fight for real. But Grandma Maud kept Ezard out of trouble, making him read his Bible every day and encouraged a clean Christian life. When Ezard asked if he could have 50 cents to join a boxing gym, she hesitated, but the next day it gave him the money. She figured that boxing wasn't the most wholesome activity, but it was better than sitting idle after school in between shifts at the clothing store. 
Ezard met a small Welshman named Bert Williams. Many of the gyms he first visited kicked him out. Williams later described Ezard as a skinny, undernourished kid who could barely stand and let alone box, but he showed some spirit and he let him train in his gym. Bert happened to uh, be the proprietor, or at least one of the main uh, coaches or trainers in uh, the gym where uh, young Ezard showed up. And uh, he went up to Bert Williams and he just said, I want to be a fighter. And Bert Williams looked at him and uh, uh, observed that he was very skinny and uh, undernourished and very shy. Uh, which runs counter to uh, what many people's perceptions of fighters are. But Burt Williams is a very respected fight guy in the community. In Cincinnati had a very robust and large boxing community. Uh, he just became his, his initial coach, his amateur coach. And uh, Burt Williams uh, has to be credited uh, to some degree, by the way, and he gets none at all uh, with having taught uh, Ezard a lot of what um, he, he came to use as a fighter and a very professional one or a very, a very successful one, I should say. Ezard took his fair share of beatings at Williams' gym. The first day, a more experienced amateur knocked him around the ring, and he left bleeding and bruised. But he showed up the next day, and the following one too. Ezard slowly got better. He stuck and moved. He kept his chin down when he threw his jab and breathed through his nose. He learned the fundamentals that don't come naturally to a person in a street fight. And some guys are that way in the gym, but then they put him in the ring, and then they forget everything, and they become stage fright, then they can't perform. They call them gym fighters. Gym fighters look like champions in the gym. And then when you put them in the ring, they just freeze up. They just don't ever, and they don't ever get out of it. Burt Williams booked Ezard for a match at the American Legion Hall in Newport, Kentucky, just across the river from Cincinnati. Today, Ivy runs up and down the building. They hosted bingo on Fridays. But in 1936, the American Legion Hall was humming with fight fans. The room stunk with smoke and the boxing ring barely fit between the pool tables and the bar. Did Ezard really have promise in him? Would Ezard get scared under the bright lights? Would he freeze up when he was hit with a real punch? Was he destined to be a gym fighter? Everybody is special, nobody is junk. I'd name a male junk. Everybody's got a skill or a talent. It's up to me as, as a coach to find that skill or talent. I tell the kid, hey, you know, you're a nice kid, you're working hard, but take up another sport. <clears throat> uh, my dad did the same thing to me. He said, hey, take up another sport. You're not cut out to be a boxer. If you stay in here, you're going to wind up with scrambled eggs for brains. Ezard's opponent was Al Jackson, another new kid on the amateur circuit, and he was beatable but not easy. The fight was probably early in the card. The observers, mostly men, mostly gamblers, and mostly smokers, got their drinks and placed their bets. The two amateurs rushed each other. Ezard threw winging punches and glanced off of Jackson's forearms. Ezard's opponent bobbed and weaved and hugged inside, slipping under Ezard's crooked jabs. The lights in the crowd shocked Ezard, and he forgot his fundamentals in the first round. They started fighting in a phone booth, punching through the cigarette smoke, refusing to step backward, and grabbing on for dear life when they got tired. Midway through round one, though, Jackson popped up from a flurry and stung Ezard with a left hook. The lights went out, and the referee counted. One. Two. Three. Al Jackson backpedaled to a neutral corner, and Ezard's trainer, Burt Williams, asked himself if Ezard was destined to be a gym fighter. Six, seven, eight. The ring lights blurred for Ezard, but at least the lights were on. Ezard took a knee on the canvas and got up on the count of eight. Burt shouted over the din. The gamblers, who bet a dollar or two on Jackson, elbowed their friends in the crowd. Just survive the round, Ezard thought. Ezard kept Jackson at bay with a series of jabs for the remaining minute. In the second round, 
he came out with a renewed energy against his opponent. He punished Al Jackson with a flurry of hooks and uppercuts. He pushed him against the ropes. He fended off punches with his glove. A sharp hook to the liver put Jackson on the canvas. And Al Jackson, he couldn't get up before the count of 10. Burt Williams had his answer. This kid, Ezra Charles, was going to be better than a gym fighter. Burt Williams was going to make Ezra a great boxer and maybe get a piece of those winnings too. But suffice to say that uh, Ezard owed something to Burt Williams for the fighter that he became. And, it's, and, and Williams, by the way, became very bitter uh, later on when um, Ezard starting, started, quote unquote, getting into the money, uh, as, as used to be said, when a fighter started getting successful. And uh, I don't really blame him, but I, but I don't know exactly why they split. After his fight against Jackson, Ezard went home and looked at his scrapbook of Joe Lewis clippings. Photos of him smiling and endorsing products, food that Ezra didn't eat, and medicine that he didn't take. Lewis wore suits, he flashed smiles, and sat close, but not too close, with white Hollywood actresses. Ezard saw this as his inspiration. He went on to win 42 straight times in his amateur career, thanks primarily to his tireless work ethic. He steamrolled his early opponents with his signature slashing punches. Even as Charles was a professional fighter and even working shifts at the clothing store, he still attended high school. Today, try to picture a high school kid boxing against serious opponents and then going to school the next day. In a suit. Yep, Ezard wore a suit to school every day. I mean, he wanted to look good with the purses he picked up. And plus, that's one of the benefits of working at a clothing store. Well, when he went to school, uh, went to Woodward, uh, you know, his, his home life made sure that he was well-dressed when he went out in the world, that he was clean and neat. But he was also a little older than some of the students. You know, not by a whole lot, but... Um, you know, enough to make a difference. And of course, by the time he was in high school, he was boxing uh, as an amateur. And, and so building a reputation among the other students as a boxer. And so it was a big deal for um, kids, especially younger kids, to, um, to kind of, you know, be friends with him, mess with him a little bit. And uh, um, there is that old story to where uh, he put his hands in his pockets and uh, had them throw punches at him, and he ducked every one of them. That's Kevin Grace. This is Frank Wentenkamp. He went to high school with Ezard Charles, and this is how he remembers him. I had hurt my leg, and I was a gymnast. So I was trying to build my leg up, and I start running at the track after school. And Ez was running, and there was a fellow. There were three boxers who were running. There was Ez and um, Lloyd Seals and... Uh, Sylvester Salter. So I ran with them and uh, we became acquainted and we had a lot of fun, a lot of laughs together. So as when he would box, he would uh, let me carry a bucket like it's part of his entourage and then I could get in free. But that nice kid from Cincinnati would soon learn that the violent delights of boxing also had violent ends. That's the show. Hey, I had a good time making this. Hope you had a good time listening. Please do me a big favor. If you made it this far, just a couple of seconds, leave a uh, five-star rating, leave a review if you're so inclined. That really, really helps me out, helps other people find this show, and um, it really only takes a few seconds. On next week's episode, we're going to get a little bit closer to Charles's matchup with the great Joe Lewis. We're going to talk about the time Charles killed a man in the ring, how that affects a guy like that, and what it's like to be an almost, almost famous star, black boxer in World War II, and a whole, whole lot more. Appreciate you guys hanging out. I'll see you soon.